It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes, breaking down all that is happening with respect to the New York football Giants in multiple ways for you to interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring at 201-939-4513, or you can find us on Twitter using hashtag GiantsChat. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we are inching closer to the release of the 2022 NFL schedule. That will happen tomorrow night on NFL Network at 8 p.m. Eastern. In case you have not seen it yet, Paul and I did a very detailed Giants Huddle podcast, which is up on Giants.com, the mobile app. You can also see it on YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platforms, where we broke down all 14 opponents for the Giants this season. Clearly, you don't know the order of the games, but we went into detail in terms of every change that those teams made, players they lost. So we're not going to necessarily repeat that, but if you want to delve into that, we absolutely advise you to head over to the Giants Huddle podcast to take a listen. So we thought we'd get more into the structure and the breakdown of how things may play out this year. And Paul, all we know at this point is the one game. And that's the fact that the Giants are going to visit the Packers in London. And that's going to be week five. So I was talking about this a little bit with Jeff last week with the announcement. But we know for sure that the Giants are going to have a very, very lengthy stretch I don't even want to call it the second half of the season because it's much more than the second half of the season. But that is by far going to be quite the challenge for especially a young team that is looking to develop a lot of players. Well, let's look at it this way, Lance. Um, First things first, you mentioned the, the London trip in week five. The NFL allows every team the option the following week after their overseas vacation, if you will, to have a bye week. And the Giants reportedly, and I don't have confirmation of this, so again, I I say reportedly, declined the bye week after the London game because, as I understand it, uh, the philosophy is that having the bye in week six would not be a good idea. And that kind of ties into what you just set me up for with your question. You don't want to have a bye week that early because then you're putting yourself through quite the gauntlet coming back for the second third or second two-thirds of the season. So uh, if, in fact, that turns out to be the case, I think it's a wise move by the Giants. They're treating the London game, as I understand it, they'll treat it much like a West Coast trip, as if they were going to Seattle and say, look, we understand it's a six-plus-hour flight. Okay, fine. We'll deal with it. It's the reverse, obviously, in terms of time differential because you're going to the east instead of the west. But they're going to treat it that way, figuring they really would like to have their bye week later on in the schedule. Well, and that's why I think that's, to me, the biggest takeaway when we saw at least the fact that, A, they're going to go overseas, and then when we found out the date, okay, you have an idea, it's going to be much earlier in the season than much later in the season. Now, I heard from, I think it was a few callers last week, some were saying that maybe it's a positive from this standpoint, Paul, 
when we put the travel and we put the grind to the side, and I'm completely with you there, the opposite way to look at it is, okay, you've got a new head coach in Brian Dable. You've got a completely new coaching staff, brand new schemes, a lot of young talent. Is it more beneficial that you get a few games under your belt and then can make adjustments early in the season since you're going to have that early week off as opposed to waiting till maybe week 10 or week 11 and you get guys a little bit more on the right track and they also have more of an opportunity to further digest the scheme now that they'll have a few games to observe. Fair point, and there will always be a heads and tails to the same coin. <laughs> you know sure. how that goes, yeah. Lance. And, and I think you know the Giants uh, organization, as, a, as an organization, has to trust whatever it is that you know, the, the general manager and the head coach have decided. Now, I could tell you this. I, I did a quick look at the international games of the past, and I wondered to myself, how many times has, uh, has Buffalo gone? And they haven't gone over to London since the 2015 season when they lost to Jacksonville. Yep. So it's been a while. And, in fact, that's the only time the Buffalo Bills ever went to Jacksonville. So, you know, I know that Dable and Shane have no doubt, you know, some thoughts on their own, but of course they've probably tapped into the Buffalo people who were there in the offices as well and saying, look, this is what we think about this. Um, you know, can I get more of your feedback on how that went, what you did, what you thought about it? Because, you know, they would have had no other reason to discuss that until they're in this seat, in this situation where they have to face it again. So I'm I'm sure that they've done that, and I'm sure that they've come to some type of conclusions. And at the same time, uh, even the coordinators, I'm sure that, that Kafka uh, coming out of Kansas City, you know, they haven't been to London since 2015, so I'm sure he's really curious about it because he was not in Kansas City uh, at that point. Sure. So, you know, what are we what are we talking about, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the, the logistics and how you have to adapt? Now, Baltimore was there in 2017 uh, when uh, they played Jacksonville. It, it seems like everybody plays Jacksonville over there. Yeah, well, Jacksonville's <laughs> there every year, yeah. So. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Makes it quite easy. So, yeah. so um, I, 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 I guess, you know, uh, Wink has, has a little bit of a, an idea, but... Um, obviously what it comes down to is anybody who's going to go there will A, rely on their own experience, but B, they will probably also try to investigate others' experiences. Well, it's interesting you were bringing up the connections to some members of the coaching staff because I remember I looked through actually Dable's entire coaching career in the NFL going back to 07 when they started the international games. And believe it or not, Paul, he never went overseas. And he's been on a variety of mm -hmm. teams. So this is going to be his first opportunity. I'm not saying that nobody else on the coaching staff has not been exposed to that, but you're not looking at the head guy that could say, hey, in 2015, I went over with so-and-so. So I'm sure he's going to lean heavily, as you were hitting on, to some of the players' experiences who have been exposed to it, to some of the coaches on his staff. But this is really going to be uncharted territory for him because he's going to be going through it as a head man for the first time ever. And, you know, you could have conversations with 50 million different people that have been there and done that. But like anything else in life, at least this is my perspective, until you actually are thrown into the situation, 
you're going to start to learn about things that you say, well, you know what, I wish I would have planned accordingly for this or vice versa. So it's going to be a good teachable moment for everybody involved. But you would think, I guess, it's just kind of crazy because we always talk about the NFL being such a small world and so much overlapping. I would have thought maybe in some capacity, given the fact that he's been in the league so long, he would have gone overseas. But believe it or not, all the teams that he's been associated with, this is going to be his uh, first go-around there. Right. And Shane was associated with the Dolphins at a time when they had gone over to to, uh, London. But I don't necessarily know if he made that trip. Well, because he wasn't necessarily the general manager or somebody very high up. He was only a scout at that point. Correct, exactly. And they don't necessarily bring the entire scouting department. Why would they? I, I do know this. That when the Giants made that first trip to London back in 2007, at that point in time, the NFL was inviting like every member of your entire organization to go because that was the first time it had happened. It was very historic and they were trying to be very inclusive. And for the first several years, I believe, the league had had opened up the invitations to be rather wide so that organizations could get their people over there to experience this, and they really wanted to make a huge push and make everybody feel like this was a great thing. So I don't know if, as a scout, Shane had the chance to be included amongst the uh, Miami travel party when when they had gone over in in 2014. I I just don't know the answer to that. But what I will say, okay, is that – uh, because of his deep association and Dable's deep association with the people in Buffalo the last few years, I'm sure that there are some people within that organization who oh, sure. made that last trip who they can still tap into. 100%. And you said it was 2014, if I heard you correct, Paul, yeah. in terms of the Dolphins trip. So keep in mind, by that time, he was, he was actually the director of player personnel. So if he was more involved in terms of the actual NFL roster and NFL players, it's possible. It's possible. That he went out because previously he was more involved in the college scouting Correct. side. And I was going to say, you know, at that time, you're right in the midst of the college football season. Highly unlikely that a scout involved in that side would have the time to go and watch an mm-hmm. NFL game. But the fact that he was then more on the player personnel side with the actual NFL roster, not crazy to think that he may have taken a trip. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I just don't know the answer to that. I I haven't seen him to ask him. Yeah. But once again, we're connecting the dots here. And I think overall, there's a lot of newness with respect to the Giants, at least the current people involved in the organization at the decision-making positions, as well as on the roster who are going to be exposed to this situation. And to me, the biggest challenge, especially for the college guys, is – Can you adapt to, remember, we talk about this pretty much with every draft class. The college season is shorter than the NFL. So you get to a point where you're wrapping up your season. Maybe it's conference championship weekend. And then remember, you have off or final exams. And then you play your bowl game. You're going all the way straight. But also, even though college teams have buys, I don't think any of these college players can say throughout their experience, Paul, that they've ever had a situation where they've gone from week seven because week six will be the bye so week seven all the way through week 18 without any interruption whatsoever that's going to be the biggest test that's asking a for lot those college guys yes exactly i agree with you that's asking a lot and, and you th- also know how these college rookies uh just pro rookies they're college former college players now pro rookies uh they all hit the wall usually right around thanksgiving you know that lance 
Yeah. I mean, that goes without saying, without even adjusting for the buy and when that's going to be, so forth and so on. A lot of these kids have only played 10, 11, 12 games. You know, that's the most they've ever played in one season. And and they often hit that wall. And and then for a week or two, they're not they're not outputting the kind of production that you're used to seeing from them. And then all of a sudden, maybe the last couple of weeks, you know, they get a little a little pep again with a second wind. But it can be a real challenge. One hundred percent. And that's why I'm highlighting that because it's not necessarily the entire roster, even though the guys are young overall, because There have been players that have been exposed to the NFL schedule. And last year, you played 17 games for the first time. But it's a rude awakening, as you were hitting on, for some of these college players. And remember, what did we talk about, Paul, on previous shows? This is a year where you want a number of players in this draft class to come in year one and make a notable impact. Because it calls for it, and the opportunity will be there. For example, the Kayvon Thibodeaux, the Evan Neals of the world, especially, who are your top 10 picks that you invested a very valuable resource in. So Thibodeau and Neil, as great of players as they are and as much upside as you want to talk about, they have never been in a situation where they're going to go through double-digit games uninterrupted. And sometimes it's the land of the unknown because they themselves, they can tell you they have all the confidence in the world, but then when you get to Week 16 and you don't have as much gas in the tank or you started to go through the NFL cycle of what training is like, diet. Remember, they're going to be adjusting to all of those things. That, to me, is going to be something that shouldn't be thrown out to the wayside. So all of these things are interchangeable parts, and all of them are related to the fact that the Giants are going to be playing a game in London in Week 5. So, well, you know yeah, what, though, Lance? There's another point to be, to be made here, too, and that is the other side of the coin. The Green Bay Packers have never been to London. Okay, this is their first time ever, even though this thing has been going on since 2007. The Packers are making their first trip there. The Giants, by the way, are making their third, as we have no doubt outlined many times over the last couple of months. Uh, This is, uh, you know, for for them, it's a brand new thing. Now, it's not for Matt LaFleur, because I looked that up, too. And their head coach went to London in back-to-back years when he was the offensive coordinator with the Rams in 17 and with the Titans in 18. So even though their organization is new to this, LaFleur has two consecutive years of experiences of dealing with the overseas trip. That certainly is something that he's going to be pulling off of or drawing on as he makes his plans on how to deal with it. No, that's a great point. Plus, Joe Barry, who's their defensive coordinator, I didn't look through his history, but considering he's been in the NFL for quite some time, going back to at least 2000, we're talking about a good 20 years, something tells me the chances of him perhaps crossing paths with something related to overseas could also be in play. So he's got some veterans on that staff. And I think the other big difference, Paul, as we make the comparison, I wasn't necessarily looking at it from the Green Bay perspective, but it's interesting you brought that up. The Packers, a little bit more of a veteran roster that has been, I think, involved in a variety of different NFL seasons. That team has gone to the playoffs in recent history. So Going through the duration and the length of a season, not that necessarily the Giants are worried about what's going to happen to Green Bay after the fact, but I'm just bringing that up as a layer of this. And then, like I said, something tells me I think a lot of those veterans may have been on other teams and could have very well been exposed to an overseas trip. So that's the big difference, I think, between Green Bay and the Giants, at least on the surface, as we inch closer to the start of the season. Absolutely.
Good stuff. 201. Yeah, go ahead. You want to answer? No, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to think about those things because no doubt, Lance, what we what we often forget or overlook is that the logistical factors can really throw a wrench into a team because they come back from one of these things and afterwards they's like, well, you know, I wish I knew that beforehand or I wish I had better prepared for that or I, I wish that I had known that because if if I did, I would have done a few things differently. There's always like that, that I don't want to say loser's lament, but after the fact, after you've done it, that experience is usually something that gives you gives you a reason to shake your head and say, ah, you know what? Next time we're going to be in better shape because we we now know, uh, and and that always kinds of comes into play when you're dealing with something that is so out of the ordinary. It's no different. And one last point here, which just came to mind based on what you said, Paul, when you go to the Super Bowl for the first time and you have the two weeks between the conference championship game and the big game. And when you've never experienced that before as a coach or even as a player, what do you have to prioritize the first week before you then head out to the location of the Super Bowl when you have all the media requests and all of the dog and pony show that you're not necessarily going through during a typical regular season because the coverage is enormous. And for example, not to get off topic, but if you remember when Sean McVay, and coincidentally the Rams just won the Super Bowl, so this was his second go-around, When they played the Patriots a few years back, one of the things McVay had mentioned was that he overwhelmed himself in film study, that he watched too much stuff. And if he could go back again, right, he wouldn't have done that. Well, I guarantee you, when he was playing the Bengals this year, the one thing that he learned, he probably Mm -hmm. in all likelihood applied. So the London trip, while it's not necessarily the same stage, it's, to your point, a very unusual setup, unique, very similar to a Super Bowl. So once you actually go through it, it better prepares you 10 times in terms of what you're going to see down the road. So I think that was at least a fair parallel that I think is worthy of bringing up under the circumstances. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here. Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We take you all the way up to 1 p.m. Eastern. We're getting you set for the schedule release, which is coming your way on Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on NFL Network. We'll also obviously be carrying over this conversation into Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. And then on Friday, we'll be able to actually break down and discuss a tangible schedule. We know at this point they're going to be playing the Packers in London. Outside of that, we know the opponents. It's just all speculation in terms of the order of the games. few reminders before we open up the lines. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can Lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience. Watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. Let's open up the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Jonathan is in Westchester, and he joins us here on Giants.com. What's happening, Jonathan? Hey, how are you guys? Doing very well. What do you got for us? Uh, so I know you were talking about uh, overseas matchups earlier. I wanted to shift gears and actually ask about a player from overseas, if I could. Uh, the offensive tackle, uh, Roy from 
uh, Nigeria, who OC helped us to find. Um, just wanted to see if you've heard anything yet about him, if he participated in that first mini camp we had, and if you've had a chance to meet meet with him. I have not met with him. I know that uh, you know he was here when he originally signed his contract. I, I do believe that uh, you know he's participating in the off-season strength and conditioning program, but I have not had an opportunity to uh, to meet him. I did see him from across the room, and he is a big guy. <laughs> I'm not going to well, lie to you. Six nine three twenty. Yeah, <laughs> he's hard to miss, Lance. <laughs> sure. Yes. In fact, there's I, no doubt I about believe it. he did cast a lunar eclipse over Pearson uh, during one day at lunch. <laughs> I'm sure he did it over a lot of people, something tells me. But that's it. I, n- I never actually got a chance to go up and talk to him. Jonathan, I think, you know, the one thing that's important to understand, and I get the interest, but, you know, I feel like we've been down this road before with other players that are intriguing because of their size. I mean, keep in mind, he has not played football in high school or college. So you're talking about a great story, but a very raw individual. So regardless of what his level of participation is moving forward, they're taking a player that has absolutely, I mean, let's face it, I'm not beating around the bush here, no football experience at the high school and college level. So we're talking about a long way to go to just understand the nuances of the game, regardless of his massive size. Right. And my understanding on this, and tell me if I'm wrong here, he he would not qualify for that international uh, roster spot because sure we, he does. I think we no he does yeah he does okay yeah, yeah. they signed so Platzcomer to a regular contract he's no longer part of the international exemption program Platzcomer was actually signed to a real contract he's graduated okay. if you will <laughs> and so now the international spot belongs to the lineman. But even Platzcomer to use him as an example, Paul. Remember, he only got action in the preseason last year. Correct. So, you know, it just goes to show you that you have to put things in perspective. When an international guy like that comes over with limited experience, it's a very big ask to see if they're actually going to contribute immediately in year one. Mm-hmm. And the only other question I had on him, it sounds like it's going to be too early to answer this, but, um, you know, I know we've been talking about versatility with linemen. I mean, I know he's very tall. He's probably like six, six foot nine, I think. So, yeah. So, Probably not going to be able to move him to guard if if he can't play tackle. I mean, uh, given uh, his size, I, I think once again that would be quite the challenge to ask him to move inside. I mean, a guy like that, you, you think he needs some room to operate. <laughs> and, and to be quite honest with you, it's going to be hard enough for him to learn one position, sure, without having to ask him to learn a second one. Well, and here's the other thing, Jonathan. They have Marcus McKeithen, who they just drafted out of North Carolina. He's 6'7", and he's about 340. So, I mean, if there's anybody that, and he played guard at North Carolina, but if there's anybody that they probably maybe move around, it would be him because he also has much more experience than this player from Nigeria. So I would think, listen, if the goal could be for him to get familiar with the game, have a presence in camp, get with the coaches, and really use this year to digest and understand, once again, the ins and outs of the game, I think that would be a big step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely uh, looking forward to hearing about him, reading about him, you know, in the, in the coming weeks. So. I was told right. by, by uh, scouting folks the outside call. the building that McKeithen is actually going to be looked at as a, as a projected tackle he will not be a guard, I was told, when, when he winds up uh, you know, uh, establishing his pro career. Now, the Giants may have other thoughts for him, but scouts outside the building told me he's a projected tackle. 
which you had brought up, I believe, the other day on the show. And once again, that's not a surprise given his size. I mean, most guys who have that size, you know, more often than not, you usually see them at the tackle spot just because of, once again, I, I would think the wiggle room and the surface area, Paul, right, that they take up, mm-hmm. that's beneficial to help slow down those edge rushers, especially, you know, if they have the ability with their reflexes to slow down those guys. Because it's a lot tougher if you ask an edge rusher to get around a 6'7", 340 guy or a 6'9", 320 guy than perhaps a smaller person who you're trying to put off on the edge. Without a doubt. And, and the way it was expressed to me, he doesn't necessarily have the athleticism to play left tackle. Uh, he would be a swing tackle. Uh, and if he did develop enough, he would be a starting right tackle in the NFL because he's the kind of tackle who is big, strong, has the size, uh, is going to have the power and the length and all that stuff to play out there, but he will need some help against the speed rushes around the edge because the athleticism isn't quite there. And what you would do with him at right tackle, you'd have the tight end, the strong side tight end on his right shoulder so that he could get some assistance against the quickest speed rushers who are going to want to turn the corner on him. And that's the one thing that, that still hasn't changed, Lance. Let's remember that when we talk about tackles. I know John often talks about, well, there's a great defensive end on one side of the ball. Well, they're on the other side of the ball, too, and teams flip and flop them all the time. So you really have to have you know, two solid tackles on the field at once. And he's right about that. But there is one caveat, and that is most teams have right-handed quarterbacks which means you are going to be, in all likelihood, a strong side right formation, which means you can have that tight end helping out. And and usually he's not going to be helping out on the left side. He's going to be helping out on the right side unless you have a left-handed quarterback. So, you know, that does play into whether or not, in, in some degree, a guy is going to be a projected left tackle or a projected right tackle because you know that he's not going to get any help on the other side. And also it depends on, within your offense, how you utilize the tight end, too. No question. You know, some teams may say, we want him as a receiver. We're not going to keep well, him. If he's, a flex, if he's a flex tight end, there's no help. Sure, <laughs> correct, exactly. So, you know, that's going to fluctuate. But that's more of a reason why I think it. I'm – in line with John's thinking, because I'm a big proponent of it too, that you can't hide offensive linemen. I say that all the time. I get where you're coming from, that there is ways to assist the other tackle, no doubt about it, but I think there's only so many times you want to take another position and dedicate him to being basically a babysitter, for the lack of a better phrase, for a tackle, as opposed to saying, hey, the tackle's got to handle his own, and I think you'd like to feel comfortable more often than not than putting that offensive lineman in that position. Sure. So that's why, at least, I think that's worth highlighting. The other thing that I just wanted to bring up before we entertain some more phone calls is, and I'm not saying that the last caller was maybe going down this road, but Jordan Mailata, who has turned into a very nice tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles, is also somebody with that international background. But keep in mind, he was drafted in the seventh round in 2018. It took him a few years because he had a rugby background to get to the level that he was. I guess my point is, Paul, there have been other examples of players who didn't necessarily have high school and college decorated backgrounds. And became solid players. And I think Mylotta is somebody that comes to mind. He also, though, was exposed to IMG Academy in Florida, so he came over to the United States before he went to the NFL. There's a little bit different of a pathway in comparison to if you're having the same school of thought with respect to this international player from Nigeria that the Giants are trying to tap into. Sure, I understand. 
And, you know, that, that's the thing that I think is important to note. And the other thing is, remember, we've also seen offensive linemen with huge pedigrees, right, coming from the college game and have all the experience of the world, and then that doesn't translate. So there's no ideal path that says you have to take this journey to get to the NFL, but I think if you're talking about somebody that's never played high school or college football, you have to at least put the expectations in check under the circumstances. Let's head back to the phone lines. Doug is in Rochester joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Doug? Yeah, you guys sure can talk. Yeah, you had a caller yesterday um, that called you about the two offensive linemen in North Carolina. Well, you got, he has to understand that these guys got flaws in the, head, the headline coaches down there. I don't think they're going to take two players. They got flaws. I'm pretty sure Bobby, um, what's, what's her hair? Uh, Bobby Johnson. Bobby Johnson looked at these two guys and seen their flaws and pretty sure he can coach them up. That's one thing Joe Shane and Gable said, getting the right coaches in here to coach up these players. And it ain't about just drafting the player. It's about these coaches looking at them and determining what their flaws are and they, can, they probably can coach them up. Now, he was right there. So he probably looked at them and said, well, yeah, I think I can work with these two, get a little coaching up on them. And that's probably what happen yeah I mean I don't think anybody would disagree Doug first of all that the Giants would draft a player that they have overwhelming questions about is number one clearly they did their homework and Bobby Johnson he helped run the UNC pro day he was working with the offensive linemen there so if any team was exposed to those two guys more so than anyone else in the National Football League it was the Giants so I'm sure he gave his feedback the scouts gave their feedback and they determined and Paul and I hit on this the other day Izudu has played three different positions in college on the offensive line. If you're going to be a backup potentially to start, that's a must in the NFL. You're never going to take a guy that only could play one position and then bank on him flourishing elsewhere, especially when you use a relatively high pick on him. Yeah, because, uh, but like I said, the, the coaching is there for a reason. And uh, these three draft players coming in, they're there specifically to coach them up. I want to talk about the cornerbacks. It's going to be like a cornerback clinic to me in the camp because I feel like they got to bring in like about four four different people for the cornerback position. They got to bring some guys in. So, you know, I think it's going to be like a clinic there. So. Well, they're certainly going to bring in players that appreciate the phone call, Doug. And, Paul, this goes back to the conversation we had yesterday when we were talking about who perhaps could step up in place of James Bradbury. I don't think the Giants are necessarily going to have a cattle call of cornerbacks if that's what the last caller was insinuating. They're just going to say, hey, come on down and we'll take a look at you. They're clearly doing their due diligence. There were a few guys they drafted. The undrafted free agents will have players that played that position, and they're going to bring in individuals who are going to compete, come out to the facility, and then they'll determine who's worthy of a spot on the 90-man roster. I mean, clearly there's opportunity because there's a lot of youth and really a little bit of unknown. So when it's like that, you could argue, yes, volume helps, but to insinuate that the Giants are just going to grab bodies and hope for the best, I don't think that that's anywhere near the plans of Wink Martindale and company on the defensive side of the ball. You know, the only thing I would add here, Doug, is that even first-round draft picks could use some coaching up. So the fact that a guy was taken in the third round and a guy was taken in the fifth round tells you that, you know what, there is a job for these assistant coaches to do. 
I mean, that's part of the reason they're here. Okay, I would hope so. <laughs> it's not just it's not just helping out on game day with the actual logistics of of the game action. They're also here to coach these kids up. I mean, that's part of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to teach. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with drafting a guy in the third round or the fifth round and saying we're going to have to do develop him. I mean, that's the way it works. No one's a finished product, as you just mentioned, Paul. I mean, same thing with Thibodeau and Neal. Yeah, a little bit closer to getting on the field and making an immediate impact, but that doesn't mean that those two players don't have more to learn in terms of their development. So I guarantee you, Wink Martindale, once he gets his hands on Thibodeau, is going to have some ideas. And the same thing with Bobby Johnson in terms of his approach with Evan Neal with respect to Izudu and McKeithen at North Carolina. I mean, everybody can learn from who's on the coaching staff. So, I mean, I think that's a very good point that we don't just assume, well, you were selected in the third round or the fourth round, so the coach is going to pay more attention to you and just forget about all the guys that exactly. were brought in earlier in the draft. Exactly. No, and and if anything, they may pay a little more attention to those guys because they do need more coaching up. I mean, look, you ask Richie Soybert, undrafted rookie free agent, Sean O'Hara, unheralded free agent who came over from Cleveland, and, and even David Deal. Okay, you talk about a third-day draft choice. Ask those guys how much Pat Flaherty coached them up. Oh, they, they, they won't even take a heartbeat to tell you what they owe him for being able to produce to maximum efficiency. Well, and that's why to this day they speak so highly of him because of the impact that he had in their development as well as their careers overall. So exactly. you always remember coaches, especially when you're a young player, that helped get you on the right path from that standpoint. No Let's doubt. Let's he- head back to the phone lines. John is in Massachusetts, and he joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, John? How are you? Uh, I love the show when I get to catch it. We've been season ticket holders in the family since the Giants were in the polo grounds. Cool. Very nice. So, <laughs> so I won't tell you anything about my history with the Giants, except that the first game I saw Charlie Connolly was the quarterback. Nice. Anyway, uh, I was fairly pleased with the draft and the way they handled the whole thing. They're going to be living with the debris from some bad drafts, a cap disaster, and what I call two mediocre GMs. But I hope they've got the right team and front office in place. Um what I wanted to mention was the, the only thing uh, I question, but I hope there's a strategy behind it, is using third-round two-picks for two guards. I was a little disappointed that they didn't use the second third-round pick for a tight end. Giants whoa, whoa, whoa. They used it on, on, on a, on a uh, nickel corner. Cor- Cordell oh, okay. Flott was the other third-round pick. Oh, okay. Excuse me. Um the Giants over the past seven, eight more years uh, just have not seemed to value tight ends. And I won't, I won't discuss Ingram because, you know, there's nothing worse than having great potential. What I saw was a guy that they couldn't keep on the field injury-wise and then in critical situations dropped passes. So, you know... The real gems, I think, are in the middle rounds. The Patriots are a perfect example of that. Thank God I got to watch after I moved here. I got to watch Parcells turn the team around and then 
Belichick's still doing it. And their gems always come four through six. So if you've got the right coach in the right front office, you'll find the talent in the draft as long as you have a plan. Um, before I get cut off, there were just two things that I wanted to mention that you can discuss because I've heard this on past shows. One is the, the problem when you bring in somebody new, even a veteran, the difference in terminology from one team to another. Um, pro football is a big business. I don't need to say that. Is there any reason why there can't be some discussion with the owners of a system like they use QWERTY with a common keyboard and have common terminology across the NFL? I'm not talking about schemes. I'm just talking about terminology. seems like it would be a win-win for everybody, the team getting a guy and the player who's not familiar with well, but John, let me jump in here. I mean, I really don't think that makes a lot of sense because if you then know the same terminology from your previous team, then that means when you play that team again, you're going to give hints to the defense or the offense depending on what side of the ball you came from, and you're going to have an idea when they yell out things or reads and so forth. So I think that's a reason why teams don't use the same language because they don't want to have giveaways so that you have a better idea of a team's tendencies. That would be a strategic nightmare as far as all the teams are concerned. Mm -hmm. Okay, don't they, when they're calling a play at the line of scrimmage, and again, I haven't played since college, but at the line of scrimmage, if they're calling numbers and automatics like Omaha, uh, they're not really giving away a lot of terminology, are they? Well, but it depends on if you came from that team. If I'm applying your logic and you knew what Omaha means, and then you go to a team and you're playing them and you tell your defensive players, hey, when this team yells Omaha, this is what it means in terms of the quarterback audible. Don't you think that's giving away something? Well, yes, I do. But don't you think that, that with the eight million times that Eli called Omaha, it was, I was under the understanding that Omaha meant that the quarterback was changing the play at the line of scrimmage, and then there would be more numbers that, that would tell what's coming next. Uh, am I missing that? Every team's playbook is specific to, to that particular coaching staff and, and that team at that time. So I'm with Lance on this 100%. Uh, it's impossible to to consider something that would be uniform. Now, what you could do if you want it to be uniform is the names of the positions and the names of the schemes. For example, right, back in the day, we had split ends and flankers, right? Now we don't call them split ends and flankers anymore. Now they're X receivers, Y receivers, Z receivers, um, we don't, you know, flex tight ends instead of just tight ends. Everybody's got got to have a different name and a different nomenclature. And it's pretty, I mean, back in the day, running backs were running backs. Then it was, okay, uh, let's see. Now we have a tailback. We have a halfback. We have a fullback. <laughs> we have an H-back. <laughs> How many more do we have uh, at this point now, Lance? Uh, I mean, I can't even name them. They used to be so just many. running backs, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, even back in your day, sure. I, you're younger than I am, but I'm sure you remember as a kid knowing a guy was RB. He was a running back. Sure. Not anymore. <laughs> you know, nowadays 
We've got a thousand different names for, for, for every one of these positions. Part of it is because of the specialization where sub-packages have specialized everybody's different jobs and roles. And so, okay, used to be you had linebackers. Well, now, no, middle linebacker, uh, outside linebacker. Well, now let's go now strong side linebacker, weak side linebacker. Oh, now there's a sub-linebacker. There's specialties. I mean, yeah. yeah. And we started to divvy it up now to the point where there aren't, there aren't just 11 positions on offense and 11 positions on defense anymore. Now there's probably like 18 on each side of the ball when you break down the the individual details of, well, that guy isn't just a position player. He's a certain kind of position player. Now, if you wanted to tell me you'd like to make those titles uniform, that would be fine. I mean, for example, I'll, gi- I'll give you one of the ones. Um, there's, there's, there's jokers, right? There's the star player, okay? Um, these are these are terms on defense. They mean different things to different coaches, depending upon where the guy came from and what his background is. Now that's pretty dumb, okay? It really is when you think about it. I mean, I remember when I first heard the term star. I didn't. We mean star. What is that? Years ago, Jack Gregory was a rover. Casey Merrill was a rover in the Giants' defense. That meant he was a defensive end who could move inside or outside and also stand up a little bit and perhaps blitz from between the tackles. Well, I mean, these names come out of nowhere, and the bad news is that sometimes different coaches use different names for them. So the star, and you you know this, Lance, that's what Jabril Peppers played for the Giants. Yep. He was a star. Now, what is star? Star is the safety who's going to play down in the box and on a particular play can either have safety responsibilities or he could have potentially slot cover responsibilities or he could simply be a pass coverage linebacker. So that's now the star. I mean, that's the one thing. If you really wanted to clean up nomenclature, that's one of the things that that could kind of be cleaned up. Well, another guy that comes to mind is Dane Belton, who they just drafted, played the cash position at Iowa, which was a mix of safety, linebacker. I mean, you could have called it the star position, too, like you said other teams do. So it's just the evolution of the game. But, John, getting back to the point— And by the way, other people call that the money backer. Sure. That's another label. Deion Buchanan was the original money backer. So why do we have different names for that? It, it, can't, 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 if you do that, why aren't you just the money backer? Why do we have to call the guy a star today and then tomorrow's coach calls him the money backer? That, that's dumb. Yeah, and the other thing that I was just going to bring up, John, I, I get your question, I get your point, but I don't remember a player saying, man, I'm not going to sign with another team because I'm going to have to now learn a new language or new plays. I think players understand that. Also, a lot of college players are exposed to different coordinators during their career, which means they already tasted what it's like to learn a new language when a new coordinator comes in on regardless of what side of the ball is. And these guys are smart. I mean, they understand the convolutedness of the X's and O's of football. So I really don't think that's ruining the game or putting some of these veterans in a precarious spot when they join a new team. If it was a pressing issue, I think NFL teams would have got together already and they probably would have made a change. Clearly, it's not that big of an issue. Okay. Uh, I was just spitballing. The other point, the other point, and this is just a pure business thing, is 
you know, since we were we're high on security and hiding terminology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, don't you think that there could be a way for nobody to know what another team's cap situation is except the league office? I think the Bradbury thing is sad because the Giants had no leverage because it was common knowledge around the league that they were going to have to do something because of their money situation. Well, John, you could say the same thing about then any contract that's signed by a player should be kept silent. Good luck trying to accomplish that with the agents <laughs> talking to the reporters. Because think about this. You have websites, if you go online, that are dedicated to breaking down the salary cap for every team, and it has every detail of every player's contract. That's got nothing to do with the NFL. That's got to do with individuals that cover the sport. So the NFL can't control that. That's a completely different business and industry. And here's the other thing. You don't think individuals talk within NFL circles, especially people that have relationships and know financial situations and matters of other teams? That's going to get out no matter how hard you try. I mean, we mentioned this, and we appreciate the phone call, John. I can tell he's really trying to think outside the box today in terms of reconfiguring the NFL. But, Paul, you and I, we actually started off the conversation yesterday because I said this was more of a financial decision than the Giants saying they don't like Bradbury as a player. And when you have to deal with the money, yeah, it does put you in a precarious spot because I know you and I, we had conversations, and I was saying that why would a team trade for Bradbury if they know he's going to be cut loose because the Giants need the room to sign their rookie class? And I remember you had thrown out, well, if you know there's a lot of competition, you'd be more than willing to do that. But I think the fact that also teams had to either renegotiate his contract by extending years or absorbing his contract as a whole made it even more difficult for the field to be as big with interest and in saying, I'd rather get him now as opposed to roll the dice and see if I could get him on the free agent market. And that, to me, is what put the Giants in a tough position because the market didn't develop as a result of that. Side note to that, Ian Rappaport, I believe, was on with Pat McAfee uh, in the last 24 hours, and I did see the clip posted on the web where he said there were actually several teams that it had trades worked out with the Giants. It wasn't just the Houston Texans. Several different teams had apparently deals worked out. Again, this is coming from rap sure. on television. This is not something that I'm confirming or telling you happened. But but he had reported several teams had deals worked out with the Giants for Bradbury. And when they got to the point where they wanted to then talk contract with him, those contract talks never went anywhere and which that's has to do why with the money and that exactly and that's yeah. why the trades fell apart and this goes back to the the thinking that Bradbury's 29 years old still in, in his mind in the prime of his career I understand that how many corners you know over 30 are going to cash in on a big deal he probably felt and I again I get it that this is his last chance to cash in on a mega contract so he wasn't going to do anybody any favors with, with a new deal, whether it be a redo, an extension, uh, 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 whatever the case may be, he was not going to do any favors to anybody. He was going to max out every single dime he could get because at 29 years old, he felt this was his last chance to do so. Well, but to look at it from Bradbury's side, and I'm not saying and that he has a right to feel that way. Correct. And that's what I was getting to. I mean, why should he have to play general manager for a team that he's going to leave anyway? 
I mean, that to me, anybody who holds him to that standard is a little ridiculous. You understand that at the end of the day, he's going to do what best serves him and his opportunity moving forward, as well as his agent. The Giants, though, they understand they have other things they have to weigh. Because once again, they had to make sure that they have enough wiggle room to sign the draft class. And also, as we were talking yesterday, if they want to entertain the idea of bringing in some proven veterans at corner, it's more of a reason why you need also more wiggle room to do that. So it really was twofold. Because, Paul, I think when you were reading the numbers yesterday, you had indicated that they're going to have to find ways to probably find even more money to sign the draft class as it stands, even with parting ways with James Bradbury. Well, it's going to come out to about $12 million to get all the rookies signed, and we know they've got a little over 16 I believe, under their cap right now. So there's not a ton of cash left over if they want to make other moves. A little bit, but not a ton. And that's why we had suggested you know, that they would go after an inexpensive, maybe minimum deal a veteran to enhance the secondary, specifically at the corner spot, because they really don't have a lot of money to start climbing up the uh, economic ladder to chase somebody to the bank. And here's the other thing on the topic of money, because the last caller's point got me thinking a little, and I'm curious where you stand on this, Paul. I think that if you ask most agents, and this is maybe I'm looking at it from that lens, I think they like the fact that these contracts are made public. Oh, yes. Right? Because from yes. a negotiating standpoint, it gives them the opportunity when they go to the general manager of the front office to say, well, wait a minute. This tight end, who is equivalent to the skill set of my client, just got this on the open market, and this was the clause that they put in his deal. So therefore, that's where we're going to start with in terms of the negotiating process. So the agents and the players, I think they look at it as a good thing that contracts are public knowledge because it gives them a leg up to negotiate. Whereas if everything was kept hidden, it would hurt the union and it would hurt agents because then they'd have to dig a little bit more for that intel. That's number one. As far as the teams are concerned, I would argue, Paul, the teams actually may not look at it as a bad thing either because don't you want to know what other teams are paying players if you have to maybe negotiate with a client who is on a similar wavelength, because then it helps you to get an idea, okay, we got to negotiate with this guy two years down the road. We have to then plan accordingly that this is how much cap space we may have to keep. So I would argue the public knowledge of the money is actually beneficial for all parties. You know, I'll take it a step further too, Lance, and that is every team and every NFL agent who has been sanctioned and authorized to do an NFL contract has access to the official contract records yep. that are being kept by the league on every single player. And here's my gripe. As media or as the public, we don't, have, we don't get to see those. So when you see stuff on Twitter or in a newspaper article, that stuff is always unofficial. Uh, we're either going to over the cap, which does a really good job, but as I've had people around the league tell me, even that stuff is a little bit off sometimes. It's not as accurate and as reliable as you might want to believe. That's, but, but that's where we're reporting from. That's where people get their opinions from, and, and they, they form their analysis off of a lot of numbers that are coming from unofficial sources. It seems to me that as you, you remember many, many years ago, 
there was a guy named Cy Sims who owned a men's clothier company. And he used to say, an educated consumer is our best customer. And if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense. Because the person who knows the real story and understands exactly what the situation is, well, that means you don't have to debunk a bunch of fallacies to get them to understand what your predicament might be. And so what happens? You've got the agents and the teams who have the real numbers, who are doing their real negotiations, who are, who are going back and forth on a contract, and you've got the media and the fans looking at something else maybe that is not necessarily accurate or cap room that's not necessarily accurate and formulating opinions that are totally misguided. And I'll be the first one to tell you, again, I, and I've said this a billion times, the smartest people know what they don't know. And, and, if, if, and, and I hate to tell you folks, but there are media people out there who are so arrogant and so cocky about it, they actually think what they're writing is always the truth, even about stuff that they cannot know because it's locked up in a lockbox and it's impossible for them to know. They don't have access to this stuff. Now, maybe some of the national guys do. Maybe an Ian Rappaport does. That could be possible. But your local beat guys don't have access to that stuff. So everything they write is based on either hearsay, speculation, or they're going to the same websites that you can go to. And that stuff is not 100% reliable. They just don't have the guts to admit that they don't have the facts. And it's a shame. Because then people wind up formulating opinions based on stuff that does not have concrete, factual evidence behind it. And that's a lot of, lot of the gripe that I have with a lot of these situations is that when people are just, they're, they're, they're spitballing, to take the caller's term earlier. They're spitballing. And it's unfortunate because the public doesn't know that they're spitballing. And then they, they start having their opinions and form their storylines based off the, the garbage that they've read. But anyway... I've gotten off a little bit on a tangent, but you wanted to address this, and I'm telling you the truth, Lance. Those numbers are all in between the teams and the agents. They're all there. They're all concrete. They're all legit. And I'll tell you something else, by the way. There are teams that will go to agents and say, look, you want to talk about a deal for your guy? Well, here's the deal, okay? You know what our cap is. You know what our contracts are. You tell me where we're supposed to find room for your player. You want X number of millions of dollars? Okay, you see we've got $2 million of cap room. That's all we've got. We can't redo any of these deals because nobody else, nobody wants to redo them. We don't have any room. We're going to have too much dead money. It's not practical. So we've got $2 bucks on the table. We'll give your guy $1.5, okay? Because that's about all we got. We're squeezing blood out of the stone. Yeah. You see our numbers. You see our numbers. We're not hiding anything from you. What's your story? You're still going to come here and tell me you need $5 million this year? You got our numbers. You do the math. You tell me how much we can afford. And teams do that to agents. I'm telling you the truth. I know that sure. for a fact. Oh, no. I don't think that's a stretch at all. Absolutely. And that's yeah. why those numbers have to be legitimate and they have to be available within the framework of the business of the league. There has to be transparency, but there doesn't have to be transparency with the, with the media. Well, the bottom line is whether there's transparency with the media or not, 
some people have agendas, and you always at least need to keep that in the back of your mind. I guess the point that I was making was, and I think this is where the caller was coming from, because the whole framework of this conversation goes back to were the Giants hurt, and this is my interpretation of what he was getting at, by the fact that the rest of the league knew they were in a very tight situation in terms of limited cap space, and Bradbury would have created more cap space for them. So whether a trade or not, could be consummated at the end of the day, in all likelihood, he was going to be released one way or the other. And when you know that or you feel there's a good chance that's going to happen, then you operate where you don't have to be the aggressor. And I think it's fair to say, yes, the 31 other teams in the NFL had an idea of the Giants' situation and probably in the back of their minds felt, hey, if he gets released, we'll at least have a shot to sign him outright, and we don't have to worry about inheriting his previous contract. So there's no doubt about it that that went into it. But I don't think Bradbury's situation, Paul, was different than any other player that I could bring up who was in a similar situation in previous years where teams had an idea of the cap situation and then sort of played the game of maybe we'll offer something. We're not going to blow him away. If the team wants to talk shop, great. If not then we know in all likelihood he's going to be a free agent. So let's not operate as if Bradbury was in a unique, uncharted situation compared to what we've seen in NFL history. I agree. And 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 really what it comes down to also, and uh, it's another one of those factors that we don't know, not only was Bradbury in all likelihood trying to max out his his next contract wherever it was going to land because of a deal, um, he was also probably thinking to himself, hmm, I've played on Carolina for a few years, played on the Giants for a few years, haven't had a whole lot of winning, would really love to get myself a ring before, you know, I, I leave this game. Is it possible, too, that, you know, Bradbury is, is also weighing heavily as to who might have a shot to go to the Super Bowl before he decides to land where he lands? which is one of the reasons why I don't think he will land in Washington or Philadelphia because those teams don't have a chance in crap of going to the Super Bowl. Well, but they also have a chance maybe to win the division, and he may be thinking that way in terms of getting to the playoffs, and then once you get there, you never know what's going to happen. I don't disagree with the the premise of your statement, Paul. It's possible that I thought where you were actually going to go with it was not necessarily the team that he may end up on, but the fact that all along Bradbury wanted to control his situation. And by getting released, you have far more influence and control. Think about that. If you're going to a team that the Giants worked out the framework of a trade, and they say, okay, Bradbury, you have to now talk to the team from a money standpoint. They want to speak to you. And they come to him, and they're like, we want to add two years to the contract, or we want you to take a pay cut. Bradbury may also say to himself, why would I agree to this if I can then get released and then choose where I want to go, completely negotiate a new contract, and then to your point, which is the final layer, Paul, choose a place where in all likelihood I have a very realistic chance of winning the division, competing, and getting to the playoffs? Well, for example, all right, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you anything you don't know. The Buffalo Bills could certainly use a corner of Bradbury's caliber. Uh, again, I understand that their cap room is not immense. They've only got, according to over the cap, about $7 million in cap space. So I don't know what kind of creativity they would have to use to potentially satisfy his financial demands. 
But if I'm James Bradbury, um, I'm thinking the Buffalo Bills got a really good chance to go to the Super Bowl. That would be a team I'd like to talk to. Well, and I'd also throw out the Raiders. What about reunited with Patrick Graham? And right? I and I, mean, I think the Raiders could so. potentially be a Super Bowl contender too. So you know, I'd want to talk to those teams before I would talk to Washington or Philadelphia. And once again, we're not saying that he's going to end up in the division, but I think that plays into the idea of a player at his stage in his career wanting the opportunity to control his own destiny and pick where he wants to go as opposed to being locked into one or two teams that simply wanted to trade and give up some resources, which then would lead him to have to stick with his current contract or make a tweak to that. All right, that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We're back up and running on Thursday as we inch closer to the release of the schedule, which will be coming your way on Thursday night. We appreciate everybody for tuning in to today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. It is part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. A reminder, you can check out our latest Giants Huddle podcast, which is on Giants.com, the mobile app, and your favorite podcast platforms. Paul and I break down all 14 opponents and the changes they went through over the course of this offseason. We'll speak to you tomorrow right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.